0: Good morning, Grace. Allow me to introduce myself again. My name is Jeff Locast, and um, I am your interim pastor. Uh, as a congregation and leadership, you've invited me to, to join you as we go through this transition. And uh, the goal of our transition is to create an environment where um, our hearts are changed, to create an environment where we're actually going to be even better prepared for your newly pastor in the next season of ministry. Um, I've really appreciated uh, seeing how grace has been operating, and just recognize that I am deeply moved by uh, your generosity. Uh, like last week, I, I heard that there were hundreds of Operation Christmas Child boxes that were provided and packed and sent out to under-resourced children all over the world. That is great. Uh, also, you have already like completely fulfilled every request for the Angel Tree gifts—gifts gifts to children of. Whose parents are incarcerated? Uh, that is tremendous. And uh, I've come to every showing of the Walton's Christmas story, and I have loved it, And so uh, I would encourage you to, to come to that. Sounds like we have one more show uh, this afternoon. So uh, appreciate the staff and the whole church giving of themselves to provide an opportunity to hear a, a message, a, a pure message on the simplicity of following the Lord. So uh, it is great. So let me go ahead and dive into the message uh, this morning. Today, we start the Advent series, uh, as Jesse has said, the series is entitled The Thrill of Hope. Uh, this series is designed to help you uh, experience God's hope in your life, not just in the world in general. Certainly, we can celebrate that God has been at work in our lives, sometimes in just the daily circumstances that we find ourselves in. Undoubtedly, there are times where we can Uh, look back at the year, and we can see uh, grace in our lives and growth in our lives and joyfully declare, man, God did that. You know, there's God, there's God, there's God. He did that. But there are also times in our lives, maybe some of us have experienced uh, a little more challenging season. Maybe we would look and see that there are gaps in our lives. There are holes in our lives. There are losses in our lives maybe we also, with uh, deep longings that are left unfulfilled, we can honestly ask, where was God in this? Where is God? Where is God? Well, this Christmas season, the Thrill of Hope series helps us to see that God's timing uh, in fulfilling His hope for us, it's often different than our preferred timing. You know, sometimes we read Scripture, And it seems like a crisis arises on Monday, and then by Thursday, God has it all taken care of in time for a great weekend. But that may be discouraging to us, especially if we have losses, we have unfulfilled longings. Other times we can see that God in Scripture, He allows years and decades and centuries and maybe even millennia to transpire before he visibly acts, visibly intervenes to bring about his intended purpose. But however long our gap, we too must wait, and we must be changed. We've got to be changed in our waiting. Be changed in our waiting and maintain the hope that God has given us. The encouragement of this Thrill of Hope series is that at times, though God may be silent... He is not still. Let me say that again. At times, it looks as if uh, God has been silent, but He is not still. God is not just watching us from above. He is with us in this life. Furthermore, this series uh, helps us to understand that some of our hopes are not His hopes. Sometimes He's got different hopes for us than maybe we would have. And so, we ourselves and our hopes must be transformed. And that's our message today, transforming hope. What God has for us is for our ultimate good and for His eternal glory. No matter how dark our circumstances and difficult our path, we are never alone. And we can turn to Jesus who promises to be with us in every one of our trials. So this month we celebrate that Jesus came to provide salvation for all who would believe. And he will come again to consummate that salvation so that we will forever be in his presence. But between now and that not yet, we're going to pursue being transformed into people of hope. That's who we want to become, people of hope, through Christ who is our hope. Now, probably every day we use that little word, that little word hope. But we use it like like we're just wishing for something. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this, well, I sure hope I get an A in that class. Or I hope that girl likes me, or I hope that guy likes me. I, I hope my company, my business thrives this next year. I hope I stay healthy. I hope their marriage survives. I hope we have more peace. But a good Bible dictionary defines hope like this. It's kind of wordy, so let me just walk you through it. Hope is the expectation that by integrating God's redemptive acts of the past with our trusting responses in the present, the faithful, meaning believers, the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness in the future. Now that's a lot. I've included a couple thoughts from uh, Pastor Matt Woodley, and here's one of them. He defines hope more simply. I like his definition. He says, hope is a God-honoring vision for better days that changes us in the present. Hope is a God-honoring vision for better days. So there's something up ahead. Maybe it's around the corner. You just can't see it yet, but it is so good. But that good future isn't intangible because hope reaches in. It transforms in the present. Here's what I mean by that. Take some of the, uh, the hopes I just talked about. Uh, if I'm a student and I'm serious, seriously hoping for an A in that calculus class or that history course, if that's what I'm hoping for at the end of the semester well, then that's going to encourage me to be studying throughout the semester. If I wasn't a serious student before, if I'm hoping for an A, the change takes place and I'm going to be diligent in my study right now through the semester for that hope to be realized. If I'm a businessman or a woman hoping for a profitable 2024, I'm going to work harder and smarter now to see that hope realized. If we want peace in our nation or in our state or in our community or, or in the church in 2024, in an election year, no less, then this month we need to stop uh, demeaning or uh, discouraging people who have views that are different than we, than we have. Yes, hope is a vision for better days that motivates us to change right now, to change in the present. And in the Bible, hope in God isn't based on wishing. It's not. But it's based on history with Him as our unfailing God. It's history that gives us glimpses of God's character and provides reasons why we should trust Him, why we should place our hope in Him. So the vision for a better future isn't based on on wishful thinking. Instead, vision points us to a specific person. Hope is not wrapped up in a season. It's not wrapped up in a program or in a better job or a bigger house. Hope is wrapped up in a person. And the biblical word for that person is Messiah. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And for any follower of Jesus, hope always depends on the the reliability of the one who is doing the promising. Hope is never based on our wishful thinking or positive feelings or even how much faith we have. Hope is based on a God who is really there. A God who has left good and sufficient reasons for us to know and to trust Him. In the Bible, hope is based on a reason. We have hope because our promise-keeping God has promised us. Now, that's not irrational. That's not unfounded. So hope is about a person and a promise, Jesus, the promised Messiah. Now, hope takes preparation, and because of uh, our hope in God uh, to be fulfilled, we too are going to have to make some preparations. Those preparations lead to transformation. So let's, let's skip ahead to see a man named Zechariah, uh, to Zechariah's hope that's realized at the end of Luke chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn towards the end of Luke chapter 1. There we're going to see a flashback. Then we're going to see a flashback, and we'll go back to the first part of the chapter where we're going to revisit Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth before their hope is realized. And let me encourage you to listen closely, Uh, just like you're in a movie. Have you ever seen a movie and it kind of starts out and uh, goes maybe for a few minutes and then something flashes on the screen that says, like, two years ago or 12 months ago? And I'm like, oh, man, I wish they had told me there was going to be a flashback. I'd have paid more attention in the very beginning. So so pay attention. We're going to be going through the verse uh, 67 through 79. Uh, Allow me to read that. This this is where Zechariah and Elizabeth's hope is realized in the birth and the circumcision of their son, John. Uh, Luke 1, verse 67, at at the birth of John. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us And righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to give our feet, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you hear Zechariah? I mean, he's just, he's just brimming with hope. Hope realized. Now, in this summary, this is a prophetic song, and it's just a string of praises from beginning to end. Let me kind of dissect some of those praises. First, there's praise to God for keeping His one thousand year old promise to King David, that you see in Second cha- Samuel, Samuel chapter seven. Second, there's to, praise to God for keeping His two thousand year old promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis twelve. Third, there's praise to God for keeping his 9- to 10-month-old promise to Zechariah and giving him his son John, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. And then lastly, uh, there's praise to God for the coming of the rising sun, uh, the Messiah himself, the messianic sunrise. In these 12 or 13 verses, one commentator uh, describes Zechariah as the mouthpiece of God, kind of a divine soloist here, because this song is just full of Scripture. You can hear all the Old Testament language in it. Drawing on his priestly life nurtured by Scripture, Zechariah's words are almost totally Old Testament language. Scholars say that there could be as many as 33 allusions and quotations from the Old Testament in just these 12 verses. Zechariah's hope of a son has just been realized, but these other hopes are just being initiated, soon to be initiated. And I say that initiated because we know, we know that not all of Israel nor the rest of the world, for that matter, has embraced the spiritual redemption offered in Christ. Nor has Israel or the world experienced God's full and final protection, peace. From all their enemies. These hopes are yet to be fulfilled. And what's happening in Gaza right now is just painful evidence of this truth. Now, Zechariah's son, John, who we will know as John the Baptist, will become the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. And this prophetic song of Zechariah kind of makes Zechariah the forerunner of the forerunner. With this song, Zechariah is declaring God's goodness and promises. And then specific to himself and to Elizabeth, a lifetime of grieving childlessness is now gone, completely gone. Zechariah is just brimming with joy. But he wasn't always like that. So flashback, maybe nine, ten months ago. And it's important for us to understand the mindset of the Jewish people in this passage, the the Jewish people that are alive at the time of John the Baptist's birth. So let's start with just a little bit of, of the big picture. In ancient times, God often worked in the world through the Israelites and through their leaders. God spoke to them through dreams and visions and miracles. And the leaders and the priests and the prophets of Israel were the ones through whom God most often spoke. And the leaders and the priests and the prophets, um, the commitment was to to honor God with what what they have received from Him. So being truthful, being honest, being accurate was vital. The history coming into this, though, wasn't just the current brutal Roman oppression. It was 400 years of silence from God. The nation of Israel, which has always had kings and priests and prophets who were connecting them to God, has experienced four centuries of silence. That's 400 years since the prophet Malachi. That's 400 years of losing hope in the redemption of their nation, losing hope in the promised Messiah. Allow me an example from my youth I think it makes a good point for us. Growing up, probably until junior high, uh, as a family, we lived overseas. We lived outside the U.S. Uh, My dad was a project engineer, and he built pipelines for Chevron. Uh, He built pipelines through the jungles of South America. He built pipelines through the Sahara Desert. And he would be gone uh, from the family out in the fields with those projects for many weeks at a time. Now, I'm sure this is going to be hard for you to believe, but growing up, my sister, my brother, and I, we weren't perfect. I mean, we messed up. We did wrong things. It's shocking, I know, but it's the truth. So let me describe discipline in our home. Okay, I'm just describing, I'm not prescribing. Okay. Mom and dad loved us, and they believed that rewarding good behavior. And disciplining bad behavior was wise. So uh, mom and dad um, had basically designed this discipline program. So mom did the disciplining of of me and my sister and my brother while my dad was gone. But she would wait on the disciplining for the big mess up. She would wait for my dad to come home. Like we did something really bad. It's like, oh, just wait till your daddy gets back kind of a thing. Well, we knew when Dad came back, uh, he'd have gifts to reward our obedience, and, and he, would dis- he would have discipline for us, for our dis- disobedience. And I usually got both, okay? As a child, I was just pretty rebellious, pretty rebellious. But I wouldn't last a week. I wouldn't last a week without doing something that earned a spanking from Dad, you know, when he was gone. And it just got worse the longer that he was gone. In my mind, these spankings were just kind of piling up, you know, for when dad would come back. And I was so anxious at times, I actually kind of dreaded my dad coming home going like, oh my goodness, I got some spankings coming. So you can imagine that if God, who has a perfect standard of right and wrong and promises blessings and discipline too. Can you imagine that there was some hope and dread in Israel? If God was silent, seemingly gone for 400 years, do you think that might cause hope to fade? Do you think that might cause some anxiety to build up over centuries of disobedience? Do you think some people would have neglected God's law if they hadn't heard from Him in 400 years? I think so. So by the time we get to Luke 1, 400 years of all that was kind of hanging in the air. National fear and doubt. But then it gets worse. As personal pain is added to national pain. And let's look at this. Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So how have things gotten worse? Well, here we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Life has deeply, deeply wounded them. They're dealing with one of the deepest disappointments of life, barrenness, childlessness. That's a deep wound, deep pain. And maybe some of you are right there, or maybe you have something else that is deeply painful to you in your own way. And as a result, maybe you've been you've had a problem trusting God because of the pain, because of the disappointment, and all the unanswered questions in your life. Now, I think that some of our most significant kinds of doubt about God doesn't come from a philosophy book. It comes from the trials of life, it comes from the pain. In In our pain, we just don't see how God could be watching over our lives and have it turn out like it has so far for us. And what we read in Luke is about a couple who is brokenhearted because they've always wanted to have kids, but they can't. And now they're too old, and unless God miraculously steps in, they have totally missed out on this. And barrenness in those days, well, there was hardly anything worse for a couple. In this ancient Jewish culture, barrenness was primarily looked upon as having negative and spiritual implications. So not only was the hope of having a a family lost and also no children to take care of you in your old age, others believed you to be cursed by God if you didn't have children. Now, it was true. At times, God had judged the sinfulness of men and women through childlessness and through uh, barrenness. But Elizabeth's barrenness was not due to any uh, personal sin because it said that they were both, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, both were upright in the sight of God, blameless in their obedience. Now That doesn't mean they were without any sin, but unlike Many of their day, their lives were examples of genuine faith. And both of them were descendants of priestly tribes, the ones who carried out all the spiritual practices in the temple. So how they lived and their ancestral heritage of priesthood, that that encouraged a deep faith in them. And yet they have dealt with this grief, this grief of barrenness and The sting of questions that people would ask about them? Oh yeah, Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth. I wonder what's wrong with them. I wonder why God's mad at them. What don't we know about them? And maybe even over the years, maybe there were miscarriages involved. So there would be years of cycling between hope and disappointment. But they've resolved themselves to the fact that they're never going to have children. And so by this point, a kind of pervading disappointment and discouragement has set in on this. So let me ask you this. Do you have something like that in your life that is just really discouraging, very disappointing? Is there something that's really good that you just can't understand why God hasn't given it to you yet? Maybe you're like Zechariah and Elizabeth who in pain and confusion ask themselves or maybe even ask God, God, where are you? What have we done wrong? What is, what's wrong with us? I know a few longings as tortuous as childlessness. And then we're not going to dwell on it anymore other than to say this lifelong emptiness was soon to be erased by God in a miraculous way. So let's look at that, verses 8 through 13. We're going to see how God speaks into this. Verse 8, "...now why he," meaning Zechariah, "...was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord." And burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him." So just to remind us, there's been 400 years of silence from God, growing national fear and doubt. Uh, 400 years of silence to the nation, a lifetime of childlessness for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now, boom, there is a fierce and resplendent angel of the Lord standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. And I just love this. Here we see what angels are really like. A lot of people imagine angels to be like the Pillsbury Doughboy with wings. I don't know if you remember that. But just know this in the Bible, when someone sees an angel, their first response is to be absolutely terrified. Then the angel's first response back to them is usually simply like, No, no, it's okay. Okay, you know, don't be afraid. You know, don't die on me. Don't have a heart attack. Back to verse 13. Let's finish this scene. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Yeah, before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There's a lot there. But in the midst of Zechariah being absolutely terrified, a prayer was answered. But it might not be what you think. This is probably not just hey, Zechariah, I, I heard your prayer uh, that you and Elizabeth have been praying for years and, and you're going to have a son. It's probably more than that. In fact, that might not even be the most important part. Most likely, Gabriel's referring to the prayer that Zechariah Zach, has just prayed in the holy place for the redemption of Israel, for the coming Messiah. That was the prayer. What Gabriel is saying is God has been silent, but he has not been still. He's been working in the nation of Israel. He's been working in Rome. He's been working in the whole world. And Zechariah, God is now going to do that sovereign work. And oh, by the way, it includes your son. So amazingly, Zechariah is told the national prayer of redemption he offered is going to be answered. After hundreds of years of people praying for this, the answer is now coming and it's going to be connected to Zechariah and Elizabeth through their son. This son was supposed to be set apart from the pleasures of the world. He would be empowered by the Holy Spirit even before he was born. And this son is going to be a prophet in the power and the likeness to one of the greatest prophets of Israel, Elijah, in order to prepare that nation, the nation of Israel, for their Messiah, but instead of rejoicing, let's see how Zachariah's life experiences experiences of of profound pain and disappointment cause him to respond to Gabriel in doubt. And Zechariah said to the angels, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah kind of put on his Captain Obvious hat, doubting, says to Gabriel, we're too old. We're too old. You're going to have to give me a sign as proof. And in no uncertain terms and in no little angst at Zechariah's unbelief, Gabriel says something like this, dude. I am the sign. I am the angel sent from the presence of God to tell you. And to mark the wonder of this prophecy, while instilling some discipline, Gabriel pushes the mute button on Zechariah. Outside the holy place, everybody is nervously asking, why is Zechariah so late? He comes out, he's able to do Nothing other than just kind of make hand puppets, you know, maybe something like that. So before Zechariah grandly declares God's goodness at the end of chapter 1, he greatly doubted them. And as we close the message this morning, let's see Elizabeth's response to this as she prepares her heart during the pregnancy, starting in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah is forcibly silenced for nine or ten months by Gabriel. And now we see how Elizabeth is preparing herself for hope. She's actually chosen to seclude herself. She was ahead of the curve from the start. No angelic disciplining needed in her life. Zechariah was forced into silence. Elizabeth chose solitude. And both of them became forerunners of the forerunner. This righteous couple heard Gabriel proclaim that their Son's message and ministry was to go before, go before families, go before the nation, to turn families and nation, to prepare families and nation for the promised Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth took that message to heart themselves. They started with themselves first. They made the changes that prepared themselves for the hope that God had for them. Applications for us could include, could go something like this. Uh, as we enter the Advent season, um, it may be clouded with disappointment and discouragement for some of us in this room. And maybe confusion of our own uh, is there. We've gone through 11 months this year so, so far, and maybe there's no, there are no angelic messages, but let's not doubt God's love and His goodness. So let's instead ask ourselves, here's a couple questions for us. How has God been preparing you to hope? What have you heard in your secluded times or your quiet times with God? What have you heard in times with godly friends? And since we've got about four weeks before we celebrate the birth of our Savior, maybe we can ask ourselves something like this. What transformation do you desire Christ to bring about in you? Or what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to endure for Jesus? And the elders, they want to help you with this. They want to help you by praying for you so send them a note or call them and and tell them, but somehow let them know how to be praying for you to prepare your heart for hope. Grace Church, for the rest of this year, let's finish with a spiritual flourish. Knowing that though God may be silent, he has not been still. He's been at work. So let's not doubt God's goodness and promises, let's declare them, let's pray for them. Let's pray. Father, we know you desire good for us, not the world's goodness, but your goodness. Father, help us to live out that goodness with joy right now in the promise of of our future with you, regardless of our circumstances. Let's not doubt. Father, help us to live out Romans 12.1 right now as we prepare ourselves for you. Change us, transform us, renew our minds that we may discern and obey your good, acceptable, and perfect will. Your word and your Son have promised to be with us for us in us and all around us you promised to show your goodness to us and our children and our children's children for generation and you have done that in your son jesus and now more than ever we desire to obey to cooperate with your goodness which promises to transform us into your people people of hope. And we ask that in the name of the one who is hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.